0: I, they were just so uninformed you know that whole thing about oh well, you don't get pregnant unless you're in love and like these are our politicians and i i just some, something snapped to me and i said okay i'm ready i've got nurses have to come forward we have to start explaining and educating people on what we know Ooh, i gotta go hey. i've been working told them please don't hit my phone i'm in my zone bro just leave me alone hey was on the road, but i saw i'm coming home now the drinks on me i think we need a toast see i did it for me now my old friends calling told them nothing for free told me time is money daw why i paid on my feast i was starving for this day. now my fan they can eat
1: before we introduce the guest and a topic of this episode we just want to make it known that this topic is a little bit touchy and does have some polarized opinions and the way we craft this podcast is we allow an open space for people to come in on our show, voice our opinions, and voice their thoughts and knowledge without any kind of setback or, or interruptions. So just be patient with us. These, this might go against your viewpoints and your ideas, but thank you for your time and thank you for listening to this episode. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Patrice De Amado. Patrice is a nurse, educator, and author of a new book titled The View from the Clinic, One Nurse's Journey in Abortion Care. She has practiced in a wide variety of settings throughout her 38-year nursing career, including med-surg, critical care, nursing education, and women's health. After earning her master's degree in adult health, she worked as an NP in several abortion clinics and 20 years later returned to the field while writing her book about her experiences. Thank you for being here, Patrice. Thank you for your time. Can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself?
0: Sure. Um, I'm really happy to be here, by the way. Uh, so, yeah, I've been a nurse for, whoop, I think, 39 years. Um, I was so young. I was 20 when I became an RN. I tell people all the time that um, I could give morphine at work and I wasn't old enough to go out for a drink after work. Um, so yeah, so I've been a nurse for a really long time, done a lot of different things. Um, it spent my first 15 years in hospitals as most nurses do med surge for a few years, critical care. I worked in neuro and neurotrauma and neurosurgical critical care. Didn't like critical care. I know you guys are critical care nurses. Um, I, I learned a lot and I got really super confident, um, in my skill set, but I, I really like talking to people and I like seeing people in their very organic environment. Um, that said though, I went back for my bachelor's degree, I went back for my master's degree. My favorite job in nursing was teaching and orienting um, new nurses, new to practice nurses. And that was the bulk of my career, really like 15 years. In that time, I also, when I got my master's degree back then, you could kind of do both clin-spec and um, nurse practitioners. So I was so sick of hospitals at that point. I was like, "Um, I'm leaving. So I decided to take a job in an abortion clinic um, as a women's health NP. I was an adult um, nurse practitioner, but then I specialized a little. I just found it such a fascinating place. So I did that for a few years, um, actually about eight years total. And then teach, my teaching demands got too heavy, did that, um, retired from that. One of my other favorite jobs is working in adult daycare after all the stress of hospitals and academia and everything. Um, but last year after, you know, I wrote my book, I I started writing the book about being an abortion nurse, um, I'm actually back in the field. So I am working um, as an abortion nurse. Again, um, this time I'm doing telemedicine and I do that for uh, patients in five different states. So I do get to see a fair amount of um, what's going on in the different states and what women are dealing with. So um, that's my background.
1: And Patrice, have you noticed any kind of a change in healthcare, maybe more of like a uh, mind-body-spiritual approach? For example, we do aromatherapy in our hospital, we do quiet at-, at night, things like that. Have you seen healthcare change over time?
0: Yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. I really loved this question when I saw it. So I think we are doing a lot of things on the surface. And I think there's still so much, though, that we really haven't... Um, addressed some underlying issues. So, you know, I laughed because I had student nurses a couple of years ago go into the hospital and they were showing me they had a meditation room for nurses. Um, you know, there were these different things but nobody was using them. And they almost laughed about it. They were like, "Oh yeah, the meditation room. Let's go, you know, throw some supplies in there." And I was like, oh, "Okay. So, there was a lot of lip service. And the other thing that kind of the underlying issues are still there, you know, the nurses bullying, new nurses bullying each other, you know, that whole thing, nurses eat their young, Um, the structure, the hierarchies, I think we haven't really addressed a lot of those underlying issues, they're still there. A friend of mine, her daughter just graduated as a nurse, super excited, went to work in the ICU, left after like four weeks because she was like harassed and bullied by the senior nurses. Like, what is that? I worked my whole career trying to get rid of that and it's still really present. So I think we are doing some things in terms of self-care, especially for nurses. I think that movement has been so good um, to help nurses cope with what we do and how to process that. Um, So I'm really, really pleased to see that nurses are journaling, they're doing meditation, they're trying to solve, you know, their own um, issues, and we need that more than ever. So that part of it is very good.
2: You bring up a good point because right now what's happening in healthcare and on a macro level is we're healing ourselves and slowly we'll begin to then look outward and hopefully impact healthcare and the toxic work environments and slowly implement change there. Yeah. I want to I dive into your experience working in the abortion clinic. How did that start? Maybe your passion for it or how did you enter the field and what inspired you to write the book that you currently wrote?
0: Um, so I laugh because in the book, the very beginning, I talk about what made me do this and it was definitely not inspiration. <laughs> I laugh and say, you know, like I'm no healthcare, like I was, I'm not an abortion warrior. So I talk about that a lot in the beginning of the book. I, I was working in the hospital, you know, doing shifts. I I was in staff development at that point, but you still have to go in on Saturday night at 11 PM and do PR recertifications for people, you know, there's stuff you have to do. And I just was feeling pretty stifled. So, uh, you know, I finished my master's and I was still working and um, in the hospital. And then I said, oh, I got to get out of here. I, I know there's a bigger world outside of hospital nursing, and I'm ready. So this job you know, came up. I don't, I don't know. Back then I probably looked in the newspaper. I don't know. And I saw that it was the local abortion clinic and they needed a nurse, a nurse practitioner. And I was brand new nurse practitioner out of school. Didn't even really want to be a nurse practitioner. I I felt like I could have gone to medical school to do that. Sorry if I'm offending anybody, but I, and I still feel that way actually. Um, So I did, I, but I did it for a while, which was good. Um, So, you know, when I got to the interview, I'm walking in this abortion clinic, like it looks like the deli counter the day before Christmas. There are people like pouring out the doors and all kinds of people, people I knew, people I didn't know, foreign people, kids, older people, everybody is there. It's like the ER, really. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And the protesters. Oh, my God, the protesters out front. So I'm waiting through this, you know, doing my little nursing interview. And I was thinking, oh, I don't think so. And then the, um, the administrator that interviewed me, she said, well, Patrice, she said, no nights, no Sundays, no holidays, and there's free parking. And I was like, and she said, and wouldn't it be nice to take care of young, healthy people? You're not dealing with sick people or old people. And I was like, huh, young, healthy patients, giving them a new lease on life, free parking. So I have to confess that I was not, you know, the, the spiritual warrior that um, I have come to be. Um, <laughs> so I did soul. let that sit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I let that sit. And then I did it. And then uh, again, I talk about burnout uh, at the end of the book because I did get pretty burnout by a variety of things and we, you can, we can talk more about that, but mostly, you know, the, just the cultural stuff that, you know, wading through protesters and being spit on as I'm trying to do a job and those kinds of things. Um, and I let it sit and I just walked away. I was like, I can't, I can't even explain this. I can't explain this to people. I can't explain this even within myself. So I let it sit for like, like 20 years. And then the me too me Too movement started and I was like oh oh what people wait they really don't get it there was these politicians talking about well we should tax uh female feminine products because women should just can't they just hold that blood and then wipe it off when they go to the bathroom like why should we pay for you know maxi pads and and we I was like wait what Uh, <laughs> I, they were just so uninformed you know that whole thing about oh well, you don't get pregnant unless you're in love and like these are our politicians and i i just some, something snapped to me and i said okay i'm ready i've got nurses have to come forward we have to start explaining and educating people on what we know so that's how i started writing
1: mm-hmm. And while working in the in the clinic, has your perspective on abortion changed? Maybe you mentioned the types of people that showed up, or um, how abortions are done. Has anything has or has any of those changed over time, or your perspective has it changed with the amount of um, clinical time you got at the at the? Abortion oh clinic? yeah. This
2: episode is sponsored by Mudwater, Water,
1: our alternative to coffee. It has all the benefits of coffee without the anxiety, jitters, and crashes.
2: My favorite ingredient in mud water is lion's mane because it
1: keeps me alert and focused. My favorite ingredient in mud water is chaga and reishi because it boosts my immune system.
2: It's like chai and cacao had a baby. Mud
1: water works with our body, not against it, not like most caffeinated products. Mud water is 100% USDA organic, non GMO. Gluten free, vegan, and kosher certified.
2: Our favorite way to drink mud water is with a nice froth on top and some honey. Use code
1: CUP OF NURSES for discount at checkout. That is code CUP OF NURSES.
2: Not to mention, with every purchase, mud water donates to the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. Yeah.
0: Both, both, both my perspective. And, so, you know, the techniques are still the same. So um, it's interesting going back after 20 some years, you know, there's a lot more medical abortions now they were relatively not common. I would say 20, 25 years ago, but we did them. But like most people would rather go to a surgery center. It's it's like an ambulatory care clinic. Really, What is it's considered like, a, a sur-
1: medical abortion. What like,
0: was what oh, the reason for that? So- yeah, medical abortion is taking a couple of pills to cause a miscarriage. So you take a pill, most people make it, take it at the clinic, but now it's all changed with, um, you can get them through the mail. So um, the first pill that you take is the, um, the RU486. So it's um, mifeprostol, and um, that actually stops the pregnancy from growing. And then within like 48 to 72 hours, you take a second pill, which is um, cytotech or miso, misoprostol, and that um, helps you evacuate the pregnancy. So basically, it's just causing a miscarriage at home. Um, I do talk a lot about that in the book too. And this I wrote during the pandemic, when you guys were working like crazy people in the hospital god bless you um and uh i w- i i wanted to you know have people understand the difference between them and why people were choose would choose a surgical we call it surgical abortion it's really a dne a dil- dilatation and evacuation that's all it really is unless it's a later um term pregnancy then it's like a two or three day procedure and um, how does that have to soft-
1: and how does that work did, like is it, and how does how does the surgical intervention work do you just like go in the cervix or how does that what's yeah, the process yeah yeah
0: so it's like a so it's a dna like a dnc same thing except instead of a curettage it's evacuation so basically um and there is a fabulous i I'm I mentioned this as well um a fabulous documentary on frontline front that PBS did that actually shows a woman having an abortion. Basically, they go in, you go in, you have to do a lot of pre-op work. And that's where I spent most of my time because I wanted to clear patients for anesthesia. Anesthesia is super, super short. The whole procedure only takes like three to five minutes. Um, But most women opt for anesthesia. You can be awake. um, But for anybody who'd never been through labor or if we had little kids, like you have a 12 year old, you, you want them asleep. Um, but the, it's a very short um, anesthesia, but, I, but we did go through all kinds of stuff, clearing people medically, you know, you need to see what their RH status is because if they're, you know, they may need rogam shots um, to prevent problems with future hemolytic anemia of the newborn. So there's a lot of things that we would do pre, you know, preoperatively, which is why people are there for like Four or five hours um, for a five-minute procedure, Um, but we did a lot of that stuff. And then the doctors comes in. You know, the patient is you know put in lithotomy position. Um, It's like suction for like three to five minutes, and like that's it. It's pretty easy. Now the later term ones, like I said, if you're looking at anybody over like like 15 weeks or Beyond it's a two-day like they have to come in, get um laminaria, it's like a seaweed um tent. They're like laminaria tents that they put in the cervix to ripen it, to soften the cervix. Um and they need that for a couple of days and then they do um the procedure and it's a little bit more involved and a lot more expensive.
1: And you mentioned the uh the hemophilic uh issues. Is that a lifelong issue or is that just uh, temporary? Oh, this- for the
0: RH factor and hemolytic anemia?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's true in obstetrics all the time. So if a woman um, is, <sighs> I always go, so yeah, if she's Rh negative, um, she's got to have a Rogam Gamma shot with every pregnancy. And it, cause it's for the next pregnancy.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now I understand. Okay. This is mm-hmm. bringing me back to like the um, OBYN. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about all these things. So <laughs> right, we're talking about it right, right. now. <laughs> I just remember yeah, the for I, the NCLEX.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the NCLEX questions, exactly. That's that's exactly it. Now, how my perspective changed. So I was like, you know, I was med surge, adult health all the way. I really didn't think about this stuff. I'd had two kids at that point, but like, that's all I really knew. And I didn't, I just, I didn't really think about it. Um, and, you know, I was like, I was like most people. I thought, oh, abortion, Ugh all right, I don't really want to go there. That's kind of, gross. you know, like it's upsetting. And, you know, I we I had patients who had had them, but um, I didn't really think much. I didn't think much about it. I thought everybody should have the right to choose. But once I was there, it was, I just am fascinated by the human condition. And there's nowhere where you see it more clearly than in an abortion clinic, second only probably to the ER, right? Um, because you just see people in all, all walks and ages, honestly, I've never seen a more diverse population, um so what I learned was that people have a variety of reasons and the the reasons I thought of I thought of like you know the teenager that got pregnant by her boyfriend and you know the the blonde ponytail or I thought of like the fallen mistress or you know I had all these thoughts about who had abortions but in fact most women and this bore out for me are moms who have little kids already at home and they they just can't do it they can't do it. They can't have another kid. They can't afford it. Um, It it was just a mess up. Most, almost the vast majority of women were trying to use some kind of birth control, um, birth control failures all the time, Um, you know, or they couldn't tolerate it like for side effects or they just can't afford it. You know, who can afford, you know, all that, the, you know, IUDs, pills, all that kind of stuff. So Um, yeah, my opinion about who went was blown out of the water. Cause in addition to those people, it was just everyone, everyone.
2: So Patricia, adding on to that, you mentioned earlier that you became a spiritual warrior post abortion clinic, everything. So how did you become the, where, where did the spiritual side of all this come into play?
0: Yeah. Thank you. You know, I, I thought about it more and more and so much, so many traumas for me as a nurse. And I speak about that pretty honestly in the book. I'm hoping someday, you know, nursing schools or will pick up that chapter that I had on the um, loose, my Spanish speaking patient who was, you know, a 48 year old woman who had been pregnant 14 times. This was her like, and, you know, she had eight kids and, you know, she just kept getting pregnant and it was just, um, you know, just tra- traumatic for me in that I didn't do a good job with her because I didn't really understand the dynamics of what was happening. And, you know, that's how burnout happens too. You you start to really um, question whether you're doing anything worthwhile. Um, and of course you are, of course you are. But, you know, you get to that where you really start to go into your own pain um, at. at at seeing the world in pain and being in pain with the rest of the world. Um, I think we saw that in COVID too. So I I think, you know, I just started to go down more of a spiritual path. And one day I was um, out weeding my garden. And this was, this is a chapter that I speak of very specifically in the book. I think this is the free chapter um, that's on Amazon and I'm weeding you know my garden and there's like weeds everywhere and they are healthy robust weeds let me tell you and I'm, I'm like deciding which what what I'm going to keep what I'm going to get rid of and and my husband is always like you, you know just don't you know oh look oh look it's a corn stalk leave it there I'm like hon it's the front lawn we really we got to get rid of the corn stalk um in the front lawn and then I thought you know How is it so different for somebody who has the unfortunate job of trying to decide on whether they're going to stay pregnant, whether they could carry this and and me pulling out, you know, deciding what plants live and what plants die. You could argue that, you know, well, humans are different, but I don't believe that we are. I believe, you know, that it's it's all life it's all life and living things. And and if I choose to eat meat or whatever, I've made a decision and I feel like it's the same thing. So it really started to dawn on me that um, I really needed to look deeper into the spiritual aspects of what's happening when a pregnancy is terminated or whether it's carried through. So, you know, the end of the book gets a little bit, uh, you know, new agey, I guess I would say. And as I delve deeper into myself and what it means um, to be a steward of life or also to just be spirited along by the things that happen. Mm
1: -hmm. Did you ever ever feel like bad or or guilty for the the things uh, that that you have, like, that, that you worked with? Like, have you ever felt like, like sad? Was there ever a moment in your life where you're just like, okay, I did like 50 abortions did that affect you in any any kind of way I'm just curious not to make it sound bad or anything i'm just really curious yeah
0: no no yeah yeah i would feel sad sad that it came to that you know i i yeah there were days you know by the time you've gotten through 30 history and physicals and then i also was the discharge nurse so i would like see them preoperatively clear them for anesthesia and then i would do all their discharge stuff their uh their birth control counseling Make sure they were, you know, safe. You have to have an RN assess them before they would leave. And I would find my my carefully done discharge instructions and patient education in the trash can. Sometimes I was like, "What am I doing? Um, am I really making a difference?" Um, and so, I and and that brought me to the frequent flyers. I loved that you guys asked me that question because I was like, Whoa. "You know, most people who work in the abortion." Um, world get really offended by the that perception like oh are people using abortion as contraception and it's like of course of course we have frequent flyers you know now again the vast majority of women are trying not to get pregnant um you know using some kind of contraception or off and on or not correctly just like our patients who have diabetes or you know hypertension and they're not not using their meds right it's the same. Um, and you know, I, I've had people, sometimes I get really sad, you know, I've had, I have my share of frequent flyers and I'm like, oh, you're back. Oh, this is your eighth abortion. And I felt, I used to feel like that was a failure on my part. Like, what did I do wrong? What, what did I not do to help this patient? But now that I'm older and looking back on it all, it's, there's, there's nothing, wrong. It's that people don't have access. They don't really have any other good reason for not doing eight, nine abortions. Like, have have we talked to anybody about why is that even a problem? Why is that a problem? It's a problem to the average, you know, suburbanite person who says, oh, we're using, you know, using abortion as birth control. Like, it's just not even a, I'm not really sure why it's such an ethical dilemma. To me, it just feels like a prevention issue. Um, like, Oh, we could have prevented this, this trauma, you know, this, all this, um, could be so prevented if we were able to, you know, to, to give you some reliable birth control.
2: Something I changed in my nursing career with patient care is as I got, more mature, more aware of problems. I've put my own little touch into nursing, for example, being aware of lifestyle modifications, and maybe even the spiritual aspect, I always preach to my patients mindset, always have that touch with my patient care. So along your journey, you mentioned you became more spiritual. Have you given that spiritual touch to your patients for maybe how they can cope with the situation or for them to feel better? Because you've, you've noticed these traumas or these similar themes that are continuously repeating in the clinics
0: yeah uh, you know i wish i had more time to delve into that sometimes i actually do if somebody is in a lot of moral distress now oddly uh, what we know from abortion research is that about 80 percent of women have no trauma they're relieved the number one feeling the number one reaction after an abortion is relief and they're usually really happy to get on with their lives i do have people who have some really deep spiritual dilemmas and um again when i the, the book is just really a series of vignettes it's a love letter to nursing is what it is because i just talk about the different people that are rapidly coming in and you know i've had people people who are really religious um people who were really pro life you can imagine that when they have it's their turn and they have an abortion. There's huge moral distress in that. And so, yeah, I do think that I've been able to, um, sort of pull in, uh, a, a more, um, spiritual aspects of that. And there are a lot more healing resources nowadays than there were back, you know, in the like late 1990s, early 2000s. I used to like look around for uh, support groups and um, books and now there's so much out there in terms of um, access to to healing modalities and 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 people talk now, not just women, men, nurses, you know you name it, we are out there and we are actually openly talking and working um, to resolve a lot of moral and spiritual dilemmas. So I'm super happy about that.
1: For the, the patients that had an abortion f- fairly frequently, or the woman that had an abortion fairly frequently, have you maybe noticed a change in their psychology? I know you don't spend a lot of time with them, but have you maybe noticed them getting a little bit more withdrawn over time or anything like that? Have they their personalities changed with the more abortions that they got? Yeah.
0: No, I don't see that. No, I mean, and I see, you know, for me being a suburban white woman, you know, I'll see somebody who's, you know, I'm looking at their history and they're 28 years old and this is their, you know, 11th pregnancy. And I'm like, wow. Um, So I'm kind of like, wow. Um, But in, you know, in the context of where they are in the life that they have, it no, it doesn't really it it doesn't it's not like subsequent abuse. Uh, the more abortions you have, the more likely you are to have depression. It, um where it doesn't play out that way uh, at all. it's it's just um such a matter of life. And if that's the only thing you know, and if you grow up in a culture and in a uh, neighborhood or wherever where everybody else is having that, because seventy. 5% of all abortion patients are low income. We know that. Um, so when you live in a, you know, and you know, your mom had, you know, three or four abortions and so did you, or yeah, we don't, there's no real, the only reason why these things happen, the, the depression being withdrawn, it's because of societal uh, programming. It's like society would make you feel bad about it. But if if you're not part of that, no it doesn't really now. there is you know repeated abortions and medically and physiologically I there are some issues with having repeated suction you know if you're like suctioning that uterus like 12 times there is something called Asherman's syndrome which um, can lead to some scarring issues and again abortion providers can't really talk about that because if they did the pro-life people would go crazy and they would snatch onto it. They already say that abortion causes breast cancer. Usually, there's like scare tactics to tell women why they shouldn't have abortions, um, which are totally not true. Some old research from like nineteen seventy eight that you know never played out. So we really don't go down that route with people um too much, but it's more if it's anything, it's more physical.
1: okay, and another question is. Let's just say you had a 28 year old that had those 11 abortions over that, that time frame. Would you suspect some kind of a, abuse or is it just a just lack of knowledge on how to how to have, you know, safer sex? Or does she understand the concept of like somebody pulling out and not, you know, not having that, that happen or wearing condoms anything like that? Is Or is it is it majority of lack of education where these women keep getting pregnant over time? Like what's the what, what's the main issue here going on?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So sometimes it can be you. You definitely would start to be alert to abuse or human trafficking, um, because that's an issue too with some of the patients that we have. And again, wrote a wrote a chapter about that. I think you know, I've seen everything. Um, so yeah, you would start to look at abusive relationships because there are. That's that's a for sure thing, you know, and 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 people, nurses who work in OB do see it as well, um, where they tell somebody, you you know, please, you can't have sex, you know, for like six weeks after the baby's born, and they, and they, they are, they do, because they've been raped by their partners who expect sex right away, so yeah, it's definitely a red flag when you have somebody who's had that many pregnancies, and you really do have to get to the bottom of it, because it could just, it could be a variety of things, and, and they start to tell you there's story it could be anything from you know forced sex unprotected sex to I have been on the pill I've been on the IUD I had you know a con you know we did the well withdrawal method I and mean, there are people who are super super fertile and um you know I feel just as bad honestly for people who are super hyper fertile as I do for people who are infertile and I've been infertile and it's it's hard it's it's tragic but i I've always said, and I learned there, I was equally um, sad for people who are hyper fertile because they, you know, so you really just have to explore where, when somebody presents that way, like what, what might be going on.
2: Mm -hmm. I know you're over 30 years into the field and everything for the future, maybe the nurses or the act of abortion itself, where do you see the future of it going in your opinion, or what would you like for that field to change?
0: I my dream is that my book will be some kind of historic <laughs> memoir of a long ago time when you know when abortion was taboo and when women you know were were put into all these crazy situations which don't have to be um so that's my my dream is that a hundred years from now, this is people will look back and say, "Wow, that was like the Dark Ages. That's like uh, you know putting people on the guillotine. It's that crazy, you know, and distorted the way that we're viewing this. And you know, I call it a holy war. It's a holy war of the womb. You know, like the fight. It, I believe right now where we are is it's like um, fetus worship. We worship the fetus." Um, we worship the sanctity of life and, and it's like a holy war. The same people that were, um, the insurrectionists have, m- most of them have moved into this arena now, as you know, um, because they need to like fight the fight for those who can't speak for themselves. Um, where we know that, that historically was never the case. The Catholic church, the Christian church, never actually up to a hundred years ago abortion was fine um a a body you know a soul of fetus i'm sorry did not become insold. it didn't get a soul until 40 days for males and 80 days for females according to saint augustine carried on by saint thomas aquinas so like uh this actually happened the ama is actually the american medical association coming into existence is what actually brought on this whole notion of the life begins at conception. It's fascinating, fascinating. And again, I didn't know anything about it till I started writing the book and I was I, I wrote it, it's there. Um, and I am not making any of it up there is I have like eight pages of references on all this. This is um, so this whole uh, notion of the sanctity of life, you know, the fertilized egg is, is so new, it's not part of most of world culture. Um, and so, I really think that, as we um I'm hopeful that, as people push back and they are pushing back right now, you know we saw with politics, um most people say you know it's it's not pretty, and I may able to believe what I believe, but I think women have autonomy over their bodies to choose um so I think that as we start to explore all of this we're we're gonna we're we're going to heal because I think it's we're not going back to the dark ages i mean we are at the moment temporarily but i believe it's temporary and i believe that young people um and women uh, have had enough you guys don't it doesn't sit with you anymore to just be told what to do so it's going to be a fight um for sure but i do see it change yeah
2: a couple things i'm pulling from all this i'm going to compare this to climate change and bring it all together so You mentioned, is there trauma involved in multiple abortions? And I kind of thought about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? How can you have your self-esteem affected when you are in in survival, trying to make it day by day by having another child and you can't afford that? So how Mm. can you think about being hurt by this, um, this procedure in a sense? And I'm also tying it to climate change where we're worshiping earth, not worshiping ourselves, where we're trying to remove meat in a sense where Maybe there isn't a direct correlation. Maybe we could have an other ways to fight climate. But if we aren't taking care of our bodies, which we should take care of ourselves first, the planet's not going to have us around for us to see what happens in 200 Ooh. years because we're already destroying our bodies so bad with obesity, metabolic syndrome, and et cetera. So.
1: Right. And plus, think about it. If you're able to take care of your body, you eat healthy exercise, you feel good, right? You want to pass that experience knowledge on somebody else because you want them to feel good. Yeah. So, so you have to first understand how to make yourself feel good and how to satisfy yourself before you're able to help somebody else satisfy those needs. Because if you're obese, eating junk food, you're probably also not doing anything beneficial for the climate, right? Until you start doing something for yourself and instilling that change in yourself and becoming a healthier person, that's when you notice, you can say healthier things around you. You have healthier friends, you know, you see less trash on the ground because you're you're gonna gonna pick up the trash. You're not gonna just leave it on, on the street, right? So yeah, so a good point. Like you have to be able to change yourself in a positive way to then change something else like the ripple effect yeah right yeah that's a very good point yeah. yeah and you mentioned it yeah. now and that's what hmm. oh go ahead i was
2: just gonna say so now you mentioned there's there's this era of the fetus worship and we're, we have to you know you're mentioning your book that this is going to remember it as a dark ages so we just need to change the conscious collective of what it means in a sense to maybe do this and ultimately that could end the holy war that we're experiencing technically because it could have been essentially fabricated the way you mentioned things and it's ha- happened a lot with the dietary guidelines and everything else so i don't see it uh, too far from the truth in this
1: situation mm.
0: yeah it's so similar I-, I love that you guys pulled it together that way because that that's really it i mean we we talk a- i mean the turnaway study was done and women who were able to make that choice are taking they are so much happier they can go finish their education they can provide for the families that they want and and in doing that um, have happier kids and happier lives Um, so it does it comes right back to to being able to be um, able to to have agency right within yourself so um, thank you for that i really like the way you pulled that back
1: yeah it's abortion is always a tough topic because I feel a lot of people say that hey, you have an abortion, you're not giving that fetus a chance to grow and, and become a child or something, right? But people never never think about let's just say, okay, the woman doesn't have the abortion and then she goes through some crazy dramatic event in her life and she ends up killing that 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 child. Like that's a worse way to go out than for example having that child be aborted. Or what if the woman really can't raise this this child and this child becomes like a bad person in society. So a lot of times people when they think of abortion, they always think of the one scenario where this person could have been this next amazing person that saves the world. But they never think about all the other things that that could possibly happen because life is 50-50. It's either gonna something is gonna be beneficial or or bad. I know it's not always a good way to look at that. Some things are just just the way they are, but they always point to this example of if you have an abortion, you're you're preventing maybe this genius from coming into life. Yeah. Or this person could really struggle. This child could really struggle in life, and might hate its life, and might commit suicide because of all the things around it. There's yeah. so much scenarios that that could happen, and a lot of times people focus on this, on this one, where like you're killing the savior of the world. Right. And, and to be-
0: yeah, well, it's hopeful, isn't it? It's hopeful. It's like um, you know, that one save. It's like in in healthcare. You know, we talk about that all the time. Could you save that one? baby or child and you know throw millions of dollars of resources at it and it's a great save and it makes the cover of people magazine or could you use you know that those millions of dollars to help you know with diabetes and obesity and metabolic syndrome and climate, you know, like, but we, it's, it's a very naive and very hopeful, like, oh, but it could have been the one. And, you know, you have to honor that. I think we have to honor that in ourselves. I think that if we just push, 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 you know, if we're pushing each way, we're not, really moving forward. I think we have to honor the sadness in having to make that choice. And I think both sides are really fighting each other on this right now. I really do. I think that if we can sort of get into that, you know, honoring the, the, um, the experience for what it is, it's the same, you know, it's life, it's death, it's choices. Um, it's sometimes not, a choice um and but being able to honor all of it and and really that i feel like the people who really are worshiping those fetuses are are really feeling um scared and vulnerable for themselves like what if it was me and i could have been this and i could have been that you know like we kind of have to um move through it not against it not push it like spiritual bypass it away it's a real phenomenon and it's painful and i think we as a society have to look within ourselves
2: very good point because we we do our society does a very good job of creating so much polarity between every single topic that Mm. since 2020 not to mention you know the lockdowns and stuff there's always polarity between every single topic and it just charges us as a society in the, uh, in the wrong way. And then also kind of piggybacking off your point. Cause I'm reading that book. It didn't start with you. Mm. If let's just say the mother didn't have the jo- choice to abort the baby and she energetically instilled so much resentment and grief and anger into that child. Imagine how on an energetic level that's going to affect the development mm-hmm. of that child, where that child can be susceptible to depression, anxiety, yeah. suicide. And is that fair for the child in that case? Like who, right. who decides to ethically make that choice or what's what's right or wrong there? Mm-hmm. that's very hard to decide if you look at that perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's-
0: right. And that's what a lot of people are saying too, is, you know, we're, it's a pro-birth approach. It's not a pro-life approach. It's pro-birth, but there is no support. There is. No social support for these women having these babies right now in states where they have to. Um, you know, and the governor of Texas saying, "Oh, well, you know, like we're going to take care of it," but they're not taking care of these women. And so you are absolutely right. There's a lot of of, of ancestral and current um, trauma that that's being fed to these kids. It's um, it's going to be an interesting. Um, couple of years as these kids grow up that have been, um, you know, born in states where they've banned most abortions. Mm,
1: Yeah. And I asked you this question uh, before the show, and you did touch upon it a little bit. So it was, let's just say a woman had three, four, five abortions, whatever the number is, that she finally decides to to have a child. Mm. Does that, child feel that energy off those abortions you're going you're reading a book about ancestral traumas maybe you might be able to touch upon this a little bit but is there some kind of maybe change in personality or some kind of effect that this that this now child feels because the mother had these these, these abortions does the maybe fetus somehow know that hey before me there was there was three people before me or three children before or three fetuses before me that got aborted does that fetus now like take on that, that energy, or does it affect it in any any kind of a way?
0: Oh, cool! That's such a great question. Um, I I believe that energy um, does transfer in a way, and the way that it's transmuted is the way that it is looked at, right? So, if if that were the case, and you felt the energy of your you know, the siblings that never were, what possibilities, how, how amazing could that be? Um, It's, and again, it's the way it's perceived. If you are heaping guilt upon a a child who's like, well, I'm the chosen one and, you know, the survivor guilt and all that. Sure. But what if we didn't? What if there was no survivor guilt? It was like, oh my goodness, Um, your energy is here as well. Let me take it with you. How beautiful would that be? Um, I do talk a lot in the end about past life, um, reg- uh, past life regression, there's a lot being done. And there's a lot of children who um, there's actually, I think it's University of Virginia Medical School, <laughs> they have a whole department um, dealing with kids who are talking about having been uh, born in past lives, um, or um, uh, I didn't read about them being aborted specifically, but definitely past lives. Um, And so my last story deals a lot with this because I think it's so interesting. And again, it's all how we perceive it. If you could look at that like, wow, that's that's cool. Come on, brothers, sisters, let's do this thing now versus I'm the, the why, why, why did they have to be why did they have to be sacrificed for me? It's a totally different way of. Of reprogramming our our DNA, right?
1: Yeah, looking at beliefs. That's very inter- interesting because I have read of, like a few things about the children uh, seeing their past lives as well or remember these past lives. And I and I was thinking about it. I'm like, what if our genetics are are so so deeply rooted within like history and the lives of our, our ancestors, where there's like memories in our in our genes, and so and for some reason these genes mani- manifest in these kind of feelings. Like Imagine if that's how far it goes where, for example, like you never been in a potato famine, but for some reason your genetics know how it feels to be in a potato yeah. famine, and somehow you can almost kind of feel like like what a potato famine feels like, that's even what, though you never experienced it. Yeah,
2: that's what that book is kind yeah. of trying to get at, that mm-hmm. there's some
1: kind there of correlation. Is,
0: and there is some um, physics research on this, and you are absolutely right, and they are finding that there is coding in the DNA from previous experiences. And you think about people – I think about morbid obesity – um, and some of it is because you were in a potato famine. Like six generations of your family was in potato famine, and so when it's when you can actually eat what you can, whatever you want, you're gonna overeat because you know that maybe down the line, somewhere in your genes, it's like uh, you better overeat now because the famine is coming. So there's some there is evidence um, for all these things. It's so interesting.
1: Yeah. So that kind of brings it back to the topic of nature versus nurture, because now I know a lot of psychologists push a big, big nurture thing. But if our genetics are kind of helping us through life, then now it seems like maybe we're in a more of a nature approach, because if you're not visually learning how to do things, but yet somehow you to know how to do them or feel like you know how to do them, not by ever learning how to do them, but just by your genetical history. Like that has a bigger role on, on nurture now as well. Or sorry, nature now, not so much as nurture. Because if you're somehow already pre-programmed in a way on how to do things or or feel about things, and you're not learning that from your mom, your dad, or your siblings, it just happens. Then that's like a pretty big nature approach, right? We just we're just we're just born with this kind of a, a gift to do these things.
0: Yeah, it's a gift. Absolutely. Because you, they also know that you can alter your DNA as you do um, your work, your spiritual work, you're actually rewiring the, the, the neurologic systems. So you are rewiring your programming that can be done. This is not, it's very fluid. It's not like a one and done kind of thing. You can undo ancestral programming and trauma as much as it, you know, you can affect it you know, or it, it affected you. It's all just like a key to learning yourself, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. It's like you have to coach yourself through that trauma in a sense. Whenever something triggers you, you just you sit with your body and like, why am I tense? Why am I breathing shallow or, or tight and restricted? Mm-hmm. And then you pick up on the few events that happen and tie it back to, you know, what are my needs here? How can yeah. I heal this? And You can literally release the, the rigidity that you cause yourself due to a mm-hmm previous memory mm-hmm. that triggered this experience right like for right. example
0: and you get it's like a muscle because as you can do that like if i every time it happens to me i come back into the moment which is i think one of the things that you teach right um you're reprogramming you're rewiring the system so that it gets easier and faster to do that rather than you know snowballing up this way, right
1: yeah right especially like when you're a couple's Like when you're a couple and one's trying to be more like emotionally available. So sometimes people associate like their emotional availability with being tense and anxious. It's like, why are you associating you becoming more vulnerable with stress and anxiety? Like, why are you so stressed and anxious about talking about your actual feelings? Like what's going on with that? And you've been associating those feelings with those actions for 20 years, it's not going to take a week to get to, to, to change that to then be re- relaxed, it's going to take you years to finally be able to open up in a calm manner, just because every time you open up, you're anxious and, and stressed, it takes a long time to to reverse those th- that kind of cascade of actions. Yeah, hmm. for
2: sure, we, we could talk about this forever. I love yeah. these kind of topics. But one last question that we'd like to ask our guests, if you had the opportunity to have a have a cup of coffee with anybody, one last time, who would it be and why?
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, who would I like to have a cup of coffee with and why? Oh, my goodness. You're going to have to, like, edit this out a little bit.
1: <laughs> Take your time.
0: <laughs> like a past or present, any human being. Oh, my gosh. Um, huh. I... Uh, She's too obscure. You guys may not do this, but I would. She is the person I would want to have. So Hildegard of Bingen. So she was this she was this nun in like the 14th century that. um, Well, she was a little girl. They they um, they put her in the um, the uh, walls of a cathedral. So they used to do this to women um nuns um they would wall the build them the the church the cathedral around them and seal them into a a crypt and um their spirit was supposed i mean they were just supposed to stay there like they were hermits um and so she did this like she was like nine her mom had too many kids (laughs) and um she was pretty religious and they put her in there and she did finally get out after like 30 years but she was in the walls And um she became a botanist, she became a spiritual teacher, she um she like was a chemist. So because one monk used to like slip, there was like a little crack and he he would um slip her things, it taught her to read. She had a lot of time. Mm. Um (laughs) but she went on to uh really alter, she founded her own order of uh, of nuns and, um, but more than that, it was science, it was religion, it was art. It was, I mean, the woman had a brain like you can't even believe. And I would love to sit down with her and really understand um, how those things come out of uh, somebody who was forced against their will to be like put in the walls of a church to, for the benefit of the priests that were inside and how you come out of that more enlightened and not angry and, um, yeah, just being able to make something so meaningful that has affected people through the centuries, uh, you know, with that, instead of, you know, the anger and outrage, which of course you have, um, you know what's what's gone on not just with women but with all oppressed people you know how do you come out of that after years and years of being oppressed i do think of nurses sometimes too and sometimes there's some victim mentality which is what feeds into bullying or eating our young right and i i do think that and i love being a nurse and um i love nursing but i do wonder if like we were able to get out of some of that victim mentality Um, and really be the empowered um, people that we can be. Um, Nurses are, we're here, we're birth, we're death, we're everything in between. We're all the things that make people uncomfortable um, and scared. And we are the most trusted profession for 20 years running because we see it all, but we're um, we're very retiring. We don't appreciate the power that we have um and so you know i think i would like to have a cup of coffee with her and talk a little bit about that
1: yeah that's really wow. good is there a book written about her or anything
0: mm-hmm. There is. yeah there are i can send you some links okay. yeah okay. yeah well, what's <laughs> her
1: name again sister what
0: it was hildegard, hildegard of bingen
1: hildegard of bingen it's yeah. interesting
0: i and think you know i have uh, there's a movie too but yeah. i'll send you the links because it's just you're just you're just blown away that by how to awesome. like Matt likes
1: movies she, maybe we'll watch it one night that we're off <laughs> we're uh, the one
0: it was in german like the one i saw But i there's a there's some really good books i'll yeah. send you links
1: we'll do a zoom date you know we'll, we'll watch <laughs> a movie together you know <laughs> but that's it uh, it's beautiful what what, what, what like she kind of teaches because like a lot of people that would be put in that situation did go insane, did go crazy. Yeah. But it just shows you how you can literally take what you have and make the best of it. And she did it to like this exponential level. Extreme. Extreme, Extreme. yeah. Like she's a very, very smart woman. I don't know her personally, but she like she's a very, very smart woman. What you tell me about her. And huh? it's like, it just a, it's a shows like if she could accomplish that with, with being put in that situation that, that, that she was put in, we have no excuses to accomplish whatever we want to accomplish.
0: It's a, do you know what the, sometimes our DNA, you know, and sometimes the challenges that we have, it takes a couple lifetimes, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Patricia, where can people find you and your book?
0: Oh, so um, I have a website. It's um, www.theviewfromtheclinic.com. Um, you can look for the book there, or you can go directly to Amazon. It's also in Barnes and Noble. And I did narrate an audiobook, which was quite a, a uh, an adventure for me. So I know a lot of busy young professionals love audiobooks. So I did an audiobook, and it's an ebook as well, all on Amazon, Barnes and Noble.
2: Uh, so Patricia, we just want to acknowledge you for coming onto the show, sharing your perspective the bravery that it takes from your side, everything that's going on in our current society to talk about this topic. So thank you.
0: Oh, you're so welcome.
1: Thank you, Patrice, really appreciate it.
0: You are quite welcome.
1: Bye-bye.